Welcome to this message from Life Assembly, a thriving church in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. Please visit us online at lifemn.org for more information. And now join us as we pursue Jesus together. Well, greetings uh, for those of you who are joining us online. God bless you. And for everyone here today, whether you're new or maybe coming for the second or third time, God bless you. Um, Just greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I can greet you on behalf of our staff, on behalf of our board, our volunteers, our members. We welcome you in the name of Jesus. We are commanded through Scripture to assemble, to come together. We are commanded to worship. We are commanded to be a house of prayer. We are commanded to teach. We are commanded to disciple And we believe that through many hands and through many years of prayer, through generosity, through the years of God's people, and through the grace of God, this church has continued to move forward. And although it may be overplayed, I'm going to say it, that I do believe the best is yet to come. Amen? The body of Christ needs to grow. The body of Christ needs to be healthy. This church is not drawing people into itself as if we or as if I have some special wisdom for you to hear. In fact, almost every week I have a bit of a panic when I am preparing a message. And then I start to be put at ease when I turn my head and when I turn my heart and when I turn my eyes towards the written word of God because that is where my hope comes from. Not words written by man, but God's inspired words given to us through his people. Would you please uh, put up the scripture of John chapter 1? This is one of the most important scriptures that we have. Oh, nope, that's John 13. John 1, verse 14, this word became flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The very word becoming flesh. A number of years ago, I created a couple templates and I was doing this through Uh, reading of books and and listening to to people and creating a template. One was for an outline for creating a sermon, and the other was just for when I write a sermon, just to make it easier, just so my mind is able to flow a little easier. And I'm sharing this with you today because some of you are teachers, some of you are leaders, some of you are small group leaders, and I'm going to share with you seven questions that I have at the bottom of every outline that I do. And part of this is, I just felt like the need I'm supposed to share this today. So maybe this is for, for somebody, there's just, I don't know, the Lord's speaking to you about something. But also for those of you who are raising up, God says that there should be teachers among you, that there should be those of you who are pastors among you. God has raised you up for a reason. Okay? And so these are seven questions. And now make sure that you know here, these are not mine. I stole them. Okay, I stole six of them from Francis Chan, and then the last one I took from a, um, a mentor of mine who asked me something over coffee. Number one, do I genuinely love the people that I'm communicating with? If you are leading a life group, if you are talking and sharing with people, if you are teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
This is an important question to ask yourself. Because if you don't, you probably shouldn't be teaching. At least the gospel. <laughs> okay? You can teach math. I don't care. You don't have to love them over math. Okay. Have I applied this message to my own life? This is where the world gets really upset with hypocrisy. Where we say one thing, we teach one thing, we preach one thing, and then we go do another. Right now, we all know that the process of sanctification is that the Holy Spirit is working, we're, we're our old life, we're trying to become new. There's going to be mistakes, okay? That's okay. But this is something that's a really important question to ask. Have we applied this to our own lives? Number three, am I accurately translating the text? It is, we're going to look at a couple texts today from Scripture that are easily misinterpreted. Easily, and, and they're widely misinterpreted. So it's important that we look at what the text says. We compare it to others. We read about it. Am I worried about what God thinks or man thinks? This is a tough one. This is a tough one, if we're being honest with ourselves. Who will this draw attention to, me or God? If you look back at your message, if you look back at your teaching and you're the hero of the story, you've done it wrong. You've done it wrong. Do people really need this message? Why? Do the work. Figure out why. Is this, is this message just for me or is this message important to the church? Is it important to us as a particular body of Jesus Christ here in Maple Grove? Is this need for us right now. The question is why? Write it out. Why? Why is this important, Lord, to us right now? If you can't figure out why, it might not be the right message. Lastly, and this is one over a cup of coffee that uh, somebody I, I deeply admire said to me, he said, is there passion? Is there unction? Is there urgency? Is there an anointing over this message? These are the type of things that I personally ask myself and those of you who, who you can see that the Lord is working in you to lead life groups, to teach, or, or whatever, ask yourself these questions and I believe the Lord is going to help you. The Lord is going to help you become better at what you're doing and to make sure that your heart and that your mind get into the right place. Now, we've been doing a message, just a second part series, and this is the second time I've done this, except I pretty much rewrote the whole thing from three years ago this month. It's called When Love is Not Enough. And it, this message was actually birthed in my heart way before it actually got onto paper. It was many years before, before I even became a vocational pastor, and I, I, was, I was serving in a church, and I was involved in a youth group, but I was not pastoring. I was just serving. And while I was doing that, I was a mental health practitioner, and I was working in group homes and foster homes. I was working with parents, and I was working at, at that time also in one of the largest schools, at the most well-funded schools in the cities. And repeatedly, I saw and worked with well-meaning Christians pouring their lives into others, and they were convinced they were convinced that their love would be enough to fix broken kids. Their love would be enough to fix people that they brought in and that they sewed into. And no matter what the hurts and what they went through in life, what they did would fix them. But instead, many times they faced rejection. They faced abuses, abuses that I can't talk about from here. 
over and over again, I worked with confused Christians. Not understanding when they did all that they could, when they poured out and they gave so much of themselves and they felt like they were totally rejected, their love was not enough. And I feel that this message is very important for us because we need to understand that Jesus, the Son of God, came from heaven and he too was rejected. And we're going to look at all the ways that he was rejected in a little bit. But if the Son of God lived perfectly and he was rejected by man, why do we think that it would be any different for us? I think where the confusion comes with us Christians is that, now listen to this, his love never fails, but ours does. His love never fails, and his love endures forever. Pastor Jim uh, had us read a psalms where the whole psalm was, the, the response to it was, and his love endures forever. And his love, and we as a body, we read it back, and his love endures forever. And then in Psalms 136, it says, his love never fails. And that is the response, lists and lists of his love never fails. It's dedicated to a God with unfailing love. His love never fails, but ours does. And so unfortunately, we as people take the hurt from man, the hurt from people, and we place it onto God as if it was God's fault. My goal for this two-part series is a biblical path for us to navigate through these type of crises when the circumstances of life have seemed to collapse around us. Nowhere in the Bible does it say love conquers all. It doesn't say that. If you love someone with all that you have, then you think maybe everything will turn out just fine, but somehow among us, Christians and even in society, we have this picture of love that is not fully accurate. His love endures. His love never fails, but ours does. But ours does. Last week we read Psalms 55, where King David, the greatest of kings that reigned over Israel, God even made a declaration. He was so great, and his heart was so centered on God, even among the, the mistakes and the sins that he had made, that his kingdom would have no end. And you're thinking, well, how can that happen? He's a man, and he's dead. And that meaning was somebody out of his lineage. God would choose to be the Messiah. God would send Jesus. He sprouted out out of the line of David. Psalm 55 is weighty, it's heavy, but it's also hopeful from a king who suffered deeply one of the most personal betrayals. And let's just look at this to summarize. If you could put up um, Psalms 55, just 12 through 15 for me. Now look, look at the depth uh, of, of how close this betrayal was. Uh, go to the first part of it, please. Nope. Um, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you. Just that, that sentence right there. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the wor worshipers. Can you hear the depth of this anguish? Can you see the closeness 
and how David, King David, is crying out. This is a betrayal that was so close to his heart, he did not understand it, and he did not know how to come through it. And these were the four things that we took away from King David last week. Number one is he cried out to, the, to God, rescue me. Rescue me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Help me. He's crying out. He's pleading to God. Next one. Hear me. He says, I call out to you. I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. And he hears my voice. Rescue me. Call out to God was number two. Number three, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. This is how David ends this psalm, by casting his cares, by casting his burdens onto God. And we need to do the same. And lastly, he says, but you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out the half of their days. But as for me, say this with me, but as for me, I trust in you. This is a path. This is a biblical path for when we face difficult circumstances, when we face adversity, both in our control and out of our control. As Christians, we are unfortunately not protected from all hurts, trials, and temptations. But we do have a God that loves us. We do have a God that hears us. We do have a God that tells us to cast our cares upon him, a God that tells us that we can trust him. And this is one of the scriptures that I wanted to share, first of all, of how it is easily misinterpreted. And it's very easy for us to get disappointed in life because we think, that God said something that he actually didn't. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Let's read this together. <clears throat> you got that one for me, John? Nope, okay. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So you can endure it. If you've got your Bible or if you've got um, maybe your, your uh, Bible app, you can highlight this. Or if you've got it, circle the word tempted. You will find three times that it says tempted in these two verses. It's okay, you can write in your Bible. Okay, I give you permission. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide this way out for you. This is a promise. And, and I want you to think back of times in your life that you've gone through temptations. Maybe you're kind of fighting it right now and you've got some things you're working through. And I remember this is a promise. And I remember when I was in my younger years, I said, I don't know, God. I don't know if this is true. I, and I started to think back of moments where I failed, where I started thinking of addictions and behaviors that I had that repeated themselves that were not healthy. And you know what? Good grief. He's right. I had a way out. I remember times that somebody was leaving and I could have left. 
I remember times of going, if I'm not going to do this, I should leave right now. The Lord provides a way out. The question is, are we going to take it? Are we going to take it? Now, there are some that take this verse and they say that God will not give you more than you can handle. And they take the word temptation and tempted out of that. God will not give you more than you can handle. I disagree with that statement wholeheartedly. I'll tell you why. Many things that we face in this life is exactly why we have to cry out to God. If God didn't give you more than you could handle, then why would you need God in the first place? We need God. We need Him. 1 Corinthians promises that we will not be tempted by more than we can handle. But let me tell you something. There are times that the weights of this world will crush you. Crush you. Mentally, emotionally, physically. Things that you're going through that you're crying out to God just like King David. When, I mean, you think of this. His very son Absalom and we, we can't say for sure if Psalms 55 was talking about this, but that's what, that's what theologians believe because of the depths of his despair. Where Absalom and David's top advisor betray him, go behind the back. David's on the run. Absalom even takes the concubines of David in front of the city and sleeps with them. A message to the city that now he is king and David is no more. The depths of despair of his own flesh and blood and people around him and he's on the run. Is there much more that one could endure? Dear God, make me a bird that I can fly away. Things in life are heavy, friends. And we need him. Cry out to him. This text tells us that not one person here will make it out from earth without facing temptations. It is common to mankind. The question that we need to ask ourselves today is when we are facing these dark times, when we are facing betrayal, hurts, physical or, or mental pain, are we going to trust this life in the hands of our own hands? Really, friends? I've seen my hands at work, and I'm not impressed. <laughs> I've seen what I can do around the house. My wife's not impressed. And some of you, with your own hands, have made a mess, haven't you? Don't you think that we should trust our lives in the hands of our Father? To put our hopes in His hands? Last week, we discussed this type of betrayal. This week, we are looking at a situation that is out of everybody's control. Out of everyone's control. Especially at about 1,000 BCE, when there was no help when it comes to people who could not have a child of their own. 1 Samuel, one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. I'm going to start at... Uh, Verse 3, if you could pull that up for me, please. 
So Elkanah had two wives, which is already a problem. We all know that. His one wife was having children. Hannah was not. And Elkanah loved Hannah, loved her so much. But she was in absolute despair. Year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas and the two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Pina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord. Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Elkanah's love, her husband's love, was not enough to fulfill this need. She had a deep desire to be a mother, She had a longing that was not fulfilled and could not be fulfilled by her husband. She was publicly embarrassed. She was publicly harassed by, the scripture says, her rival. Hannah's love for her husband was not enough to mend the despair that she was going through. This statement by Elkanah is a classic and a very bad guy move. Guys, do not do this. He was trying to fix this problem. Okay, he meant well, but his, his wealth, all the things that he knew, was not enough. In fact, I believe it was a little manipulative. He threw his love back at her. Hannah is in total despair. She's grieving because this desire to bear a child is not happening. And now her husband pulls out this guilt trip, am I not enough for you? What? Don't I do enough? Aren't, look, look what I've provided for you. Isn't my love more than 10 sons could ever provide for you? And I hope she said, no, not at all. Now, this is where a lot of us screw up. Is Hannah not having a child has nothing to do with her love for a husband. Now, this is where the English language fails us. It fails us because we have the word love. And that's it, love. We say love. And this is why I've wrestled with this word. I've really held on to that, and I've had a hard time being able to extend love because I knew um, a very specific kind of love. I knew I loved my family. I knew I loved my wife and my kids. But then with others, I couldn't separate that type of love. But the Greek language shows us that there's all these different types of love, that there's a love of friendship, that there's a sensual type of love, that there's a love between family. There is more of a communal type of love. And so I was stuck in this area of not extending love to people or at least verbally saying it because I only held on to it for those that were the absolute closest. And that was wrong. It was. It was, it was really, really wrong. And in this situation, Elkanah was confusing love. Don't you eros me? Shouldn't I be worth more than 10 sons? And for her, this love was a familial love, a love that he could never fulfill. And he was trying to put them together. 
It doesn't work that way. Now, I relate with him. I relate with Elkanah. I want to fix things. But his best move would have been to listen and to hear the cry of his wife's heart. That would have been his best move. And for those of you who aren't married, jot that down as premarital counseling 101 right there. I can, just, I can just see Elkanah trying to do everything right and he's cleaning and he's putting the toilet seat down and he's, he's scrubbing dishes. I know that tents didn't have that back then, but you know, maybe there was something and you know he's trying and doing his best, but yet he is failing and, and she is so upset. This is also a problem where we sometimes put people in the place that God belongs. Elkanah was trying to fill a need for his wife that really only God could fill. And he was putting himself in a place that he did not belong, and some of us have done that. We've put relationships with people in the wrong order and in the wrong place, and we need to make sure that we are having Christ on the throne. Christ on the throne and relationships around us where they belong. And all of them are subject to Christ. So what happened? What did Hannah do What was her response? And I want you to keep in mind what King David did and see how close this is to what King David did. Verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, so the priest, observed her mouth and Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. Now you know, you know that you are really in despair and crying out to God when the pastor thinks you're drunk, right? Listen to her. She's pouring out her heart. This is everything. And Eli says to her, how long are you going to be staying drunk? Put away your wine, woman. I'm pretty sure that's what he said, but in in Hebrew. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkan made love to his wife, and for those in youth group, they always say they play checkers in the tent, so those of you know who I'm talking about, they play checkers, and the Lord came and remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became, hey, you know, this, our youth need scripture, right? All right, and husbands and wives need to love each other. Okay, and they gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. This is amazing. Hannah did exactly what King David had done. She poured her soul upon the altar. So many of us think we have to just have it all together and and just look okay, and we can't say anything because God's going to be offended, when in fact we see throughout Scripture, especially the Psalms, to cry out to God, to pour your cares upon Him, to everything that you have. And if you look drunk doing it, well, so be it. Cry out to him. This is exactly what she did. 
her son ended up being one of the most priestly and prophetic voices in the entire Old Testament. It is an incredible story. I urge you to read it of what this man became. And because we know that there was a promise made between Hannah and God in those moments because she said, as soon as my child is weaned, I have dedicated him to the Lord. Miraculous. Miraculous. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rejected and betrayed the directives of God. When Israel wandered in the desert, even when they entered the promised land that God had ordained for them after 40 years, Israel still rejected commandments of God over and over again. When Jesus came to earth, he was too rejected by men. Judas, one of his closest disciples, betrayed him. Peter, his top of three disciples, denied him three times after Jesus was taken. Now, in your uh, bulletin, if you use notes there, I, uh, it says Luke 13. That was meant to be John 13, so you can just cross that out. I, I mistakenly uh, gave that to Pastor Leah. Now, as I prepared and I thought about that, that part, that section of John 13, and this is the betrayal of Judas, and I read something over and over again, and I just started kind of digging into this deeper and deeper because I saw the repetition of, of theologians and commentators marking this one sentence. And, and if you have ever done this before, you know that there's all, not a lot of agreement. But this, every single one of them agreed on it, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I'm going to share it here with you today. So here's Judas, and... He's betrayed God. And, and it says that there was some confusion among the 12 because Judas was the treasurer. They thought Jesus maybe directed him to go get more food or that they, they had, he directed him to go uh, give money to the poor. They didn't understand what exactly was going on. And so Judas left and it says, and it was night. Seems like a pretty harmless scripture. But each and every person said that John doesn't write things like this without a reason. This is why. John 3.19. This is the verdict that light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. John 9.4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am in the light. I am the light of the world. What John is saying is that this betrayal was the sign of darkness that was to come. That the light of this world, that Jesus Christ was about to be sacrificed and the very light that God sent was about to go out. And we know for three days. There are so many of us who have been facing the dark night of the soul, that, that we have loved much, that we have given much, and in fact, we have done everything that we can, and maybe some of you have served and served and served, and you've, you've cried out to God, and you have been a prayer warrior, you've done all the things right, and yet, and yet, you have gone through trials, and you feel like where Jesus and where John said, and it was dark. And you have been facing this time of darkness. Hannah did nothing wrong. 
She did nothing wrong. She was unable to bear a child without the intervention of God. Elkanah was powerless to please the woman that he loved. He was convinced that his love should outweigh her sadness in her pain, but it was not enough. King David was deeply wounded by betrayal. Jesus, the creator of all things, was betrayed by one of his closest confidants. Jesus, the light of the world, couldn't keep from being betrayed. Why do we think that we are going to make it through without people letting us down as well? And then it was dark. Now, I have a question for you. Can you imagine a church that finds freedom by honestly and wholeheartedly crying out to God in times of darkness? Not trying to hide it, not trying to act like like things are okay all the time. A church who says, God, rescue me. A church that says to their friends, God, cry out to God on my behalf. I need help. Will you hear me, God? Lord, let let me unload my burdens upon you. Let me cast my cares upon you. And in the midst of our despair as a church, can you imagine if we are able just to say, Lord, even though I don't have an answer, even though I don't see the end, I am going to trust you. As for me and my house, say it with me, I will serve the Lord. Would you please stand? Listen to what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Today, I invite you into the arms of rest. Today, as Christians, I give you permission to cry out to God, to lay your heart upon him when this world is not making sense. When your love is not enough, his is. His love never fails. His love endures forever, even when ours does not. And some of you, some of you might be young, remember this. When you feel the world is is caving in around you and you don't know what to do, call out, cry out to God. Cry out to him. Heavenly Father, we come before you as a church. Lord, I pray that we can be a church that does just like Hannah, this mother, this wife, Lord. She did nothing wrong. And yet, Lord, her needs were not being fulfilled and she had a desire and she just pled her heart and just cried her heart out to you. And Lord, like David who went through betrayal, Lord, may we be like these people, Lord, that you've given us as instruction. That we can cry out to you, Lord, that that we can plead your blood, Lord Jesus, over these situations and that you may answer us. Lord, allow us, help us to cast our burdens and our cares upon you. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we are a church that above all things, we put our trust in you. Not upon man, but upon you. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we sing a song together right now, that you are here, Lord Jesus, and that you begin to meet your people. And the church said, we're going to sing a song together. If you have to go, God bless you. 
You are excused. You can go in the name of the Lord. But I want to encourage you. Some weeks are longer than others, aren't they? Let's cast our cares upon the Lord together. Amen? You've been listening to a message from Life Assembly. Connect with us online at lifemn.org. And thanks for listening.